Amen. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will pick up in chapter 22, verse 1, and we will read through verse 29. This is the Word of our God. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we utter the words that we just sang. Speak, O Lord, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. We ask in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, as we learned last week, if you were with us, sacrificed convenience over a kingdom. That was the point, that he sacrificed his own convenience for the kingdom of God. He was willing to submit to bad or perhaps you might say unwise counsel, not necessarily sinful, but he was given counsel by leaders and he went along with the plan knowing that it was not wise, but being willing to submit to his own authorities. And this morning, we see the results of what happened. When he followed their counsel, what took place? What happened to Paul? That was the early part of our scripture reading. When we saw a large crowd gathers together, they seize Paul. They accuse him They begin to shout louder and louder to the point that the tribune who is located close by hears and sees what is happening and he sends soldiers. Now just to be clear, when you read those details, he didn't just see a a small little group gathering. What does it say? He says he sent soldiers and centurions. And what do you know about a centurion? Well, it wasn't just a Roman soldier. A centurion was a Roman soldier who oversaw a hundred soldiers. And so at the very least, we're talking about 200 soldiers being sent to figure out what is happening. Why are these people yelling and shouting? And so they send them down and they find this intense group heralding charges against Paul. What are they? Well, Paul's... You're teaching against the law of God. You're defiling this holy place, the temple. And so they're so angry. They drag him out of the temple. Says they shut the door, and that wasn't enough. They seize him for the purpose of killing him. They have Paul, and they want to kill him. And the tribune sends these 200 plus soldiers and the people stop beating him. Maybe Paul for a moment thought relief. Here comes the troops and yet as soon as they arrive, what happens? He was spared from one mob and given to another. They arrest him, they bind him, and they're taking him into the barracks for an interrogation. And we'll look momentarily as to what does that interrogation entail, what really happens. They're bringing him into what would be considered the Fortress Antonia. It's a building, it was built by Herod, uh, Herod the Great. 
And it was built on behalf of his patron, Mark Antony, and it was there for one purpose. The purpose was to oversee the second temple in Jerusalem. It, they wanted to have sight. They wanted to make sure they could know what is going on. And you will find out almost immediately as to, well, why would you need to know what's happening in the temple? What do you have to fear? And so they wanted to make sure whatever's taking place under our watch, we are safe. We're safely guarded. And so make no mistake, these Roman soldiers, they did not care about the Jews and their religious practice. They didn't care that they were angry with Paul and wanted to destroy him. They cared about the peace in the community. And what they meant by that was simply, we don't want an uprising. We don't want another riot. You remember that riot in Ephesus? And it was calmed down by the civil magistrate. What, do you remember what he's saying? Brothers, we, we better calm ourselves. If, if this gets out, people know that we're doing this. The Romans will come in and they will take care of business. They'll clean house. And, and here's a picture. Here's this uprising and here come the soldiers to take Paul away. They're going to take him into this barracks and question him. And he says to the Tribune, did you see that question in verse 37? May I say something to you? And the tribune, of course, is caught off guard. You know Greek. That wasn't the language of the people, you see. And so here is Paul speaking Greek, and, and immediately it begins to undo what the tribune thought about Paul. And it's that verse that you're trying to figure out, what, what does that detail mean? What are they describing? Are you not the Egyptian Josephus, an early church father, outlines this for us. There is a period of time, actually not far from where we are in the scriptures, in which somebody, an Egyptian, claims to be a new Moses, a, a new Joshua, and he leads, as you see it here reported by Luke, some 4,000 assassins. They're here to, well, they're here to revolt. They're going to go against Rome. And so Felix, whom you will meet here very shortly, is the governor who silences it. Many of those people were killed. Some were captured, but the leader escaped. He was at large. And so the tribune here is looking at Paul thinking, we got him. And yet he begins to speak Greek. And he says, that's not him. It can't be him. And so Paul says to him, I want to be able to speak to the people. I'm a Jew. He tells him where he's from. I'm from Tarsus. It's an important city to these people. Will you, will you give me a moment to talk to them? And he allows it. He gives us, or he gives Paul a chance to say something. And what does Paul say? Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you, here's my apologia. That's the Greek word there. And you can hear the English word, can't you? Here's my apology. Now, of course, we just read it. So you know Paul's not saying, I'm sorry for what I have done. That's not what the word means. It, it means defense. He's going to give his conviction. This is why I have done what I have done. This is why I have said what I have said. It's my conviction. It's, it's what I believe. Paul's going to defend the faith. 
his faith, about what he believes about the gospel. We often do that, don't we? Sometimes we have in our order of worship a confession of faith. What's the question that is often said beforehand? Christian, what do you believe? Do you mean it? Or do you just read it when it's printed before you? It's your apologia. It's your defense. This is what I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and on and on. Do you mean it? Or is it just words in bold that you've been instructed to say out loud? Paul is making his defense. And he's going to do it before an angry crowd. This is the second time of three in which Luke records for us Paul's conversion. That conversion that took place initially when you were reading in Acts chapter 9. And, and so here it is again. And maybe you're saying, okay, I've, I've heard that. Okay, here it is again. And, and why are we going to see it a third time? Is there any rhyme or reason, Luke, why you would put this defense before us? And of course, the answer is yes. He's not just trying to fill up room. You remember in Acts chapter 9, Luke is telling you, what happened to Paul. But here Paul is speaking for himself. This is my experience. This is what happened to me. This is my first-hand account. I want to not merely relay information to you. I want to give you the summary of the gospel. It's my defense of what I believe. He's gonna defend his faith. And I think he's going to do it under three questions. He doesn't necessarily put it, but I think if you want to understand his defense of the gospel, you can see it in these three questions. Who am I? Who is Jesus? And what are the results if you defend your faith? And I want you to hear me say that because Paul has been put on trial. Here are charges against Paul, but make no mistake about it, this is not simply Paul on trial. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. This is the forgiveness of sins. Did this truly take place? This is not merely my life. This has to do with your life and all who have been created in the image of God. Here is a summary of the gospel. Do you believe it? And so let's ask these three questions. Who am I? How does Paul begin his defense? You can see it quite quickly, can't you? In verse 1 of chapter 22, he says, brothers and fathers. He begins with this pattern that you and I have become accustomed to. He shows, he shows respect. He respects the people that he's speaking to. Brothers and fathers. And then he begins to speak to them how? In their language. He has just spoken Greek to the tribune, and now he's, as Luke says, he's speaking the Hebrew language, probably more like Aramaic for where we are in time and history. And so he's talking to the crowds. The tribune standing by has no idea what he's saying. Paul is directly speaking to these people, and they begin to listen. They hear their native language. And they give attention, they give ear, and what does Paul say? 
I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. I was brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. What is Paul doing? Do you, do you see it? Can you imagine how he's speaking to them? He says what? Brothers and fathers. I don't think he's merely just trying to show respect. He's looking at them and he's saying, I'm one of you. I am a Jew just like you. We are of the same family. We are together in this. I am one of you. And you can imagine how the people are hearing him. I'm a Jew. I'm a very good Jew. I was brought up in this city. I trained under Gamaliel. I've been exhaustive in my knowledge of the scriptures. I've given great detail to the application of it. I'm a better Jew than most of you. And you can hear the people, can't you? They're in agreement. They would have been encouraged by such a beginning testimony. Those are the things that we want to hear. That's what we like in our leaders. I want to know someone like that who has that kind of achievements. And so maybe you're asking yourself, is Paul bragging? You know, his life's on the line. Is he just saying this? Is he bragging? And then it happens. What a bold move. He says, I'm a Jew, and you see these things, and then what does he do? Ask the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the elders. They're right there. You can see these men. They will bear witness to who I am. I had letters from them to go to Damascus. Ask them yourself, how am I as a Jew? Have I been faithful to our upbringing He calls upon these witnesses. I have zeal. I have persecuted the way that is Christians, the church. I've persecuted them. How? To the point of death. I've even killed some. I've beaten and imprisoned others. This is me. I am Paul. You you remember me, right? It's a little reminiscent, isn't it, of what he will say to the church at Philippi? Do you remember what he says to them in Philippians chapter 3? I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is who I am. This is me, Paul. I am blameless. I am altogether righteous in the flesh. This is what I look like. And you remember in Philippians 3, right before he gives that outline, do you remember the question he's asking? Who has confidence in the flesh? Whoever thinks they have confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is who I am in the flesh. 
look at what I've done and who I am. Now, one quick housekeeping issue for those of you who are, who are students of the Word and like to read lots of other books. Please do not be misguided by Paul's language there in Philippians. When he says, I was blameless, there is a teaching out currently that would say, you see, Paul, he was saved differently than you and I. He, he doesn't have the same weight of sin. He, he doesn't seem him, himself as, as guilty. He saw himself as blameless, as righteous. Do not believe that lie. You understand what Paul is doing here, right? What is he saying? I was blameless and I was righteous in my own eyes. In my worldview of what it means to be righteous and blameless, I have done it all. I have obeyed the law. When I look in the mirror, according to my righteousness, I'm blameless. But then I saw someone else. When I saw Jesus, it undid me. Who I am in the flesh According to the standards of the world, I might be good, but then I got a glimpse of the Son of God, and I'm utterly undone. I'm ruined. It's his point. All my good deeds, my good practices, my, my preaching and my teaching of law, law, law. What does he say in Philippians 3? It's worthless. It is of no value. It's dung. That's what he says, isn't it? That's how little it is in comparison to who I saw, who I am. This is my record. This is who I am in the flesh. But then I got a glimpse of someone else, and I learned altogether I am somebody very, very different. He goes from, who am I in the flesh, to then, well, who is Jesus? How do I understand what took place? And you know his conversion well, don't you? He's got letters. He's on the way to Damascus. He only has one purpose. He told you. It's to persecute the way, to imprison them, to find them out, to beat them, perhaps even kill them. That's my purpose. I have letters I have a couple people with me, and I'm on my way to Damascus. And did you see what happened? Sometimes I think we read it and we keep going because we don't think it's a very important detail. But in verse 6, he says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. You must stop there. That was not just information. That was quite significant. He's giving you a timestamp. What is taking place? I'm on the way to Damascus, and what's going on? It's beautiful outside. The sun is up. It's, it's light. We can all see. And then a much greater light shone. The sun began to look like a night light, according to what I just looked at. It was overpowering. It knocked me over. It, it brought me to my knees. It put me on the ground. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to imagine what that would have been like. 
not simply because you've been knocked off of a horse by a greater light. And not only because you just heard a strange voice. But do you remember, this is Paul. He hears these words, Saul, Saul. You know, there's a pattern in the Old Testament. Do you remember how Moses was called from the burning bush? Moses. Moses. Do you remember Samuel when he was called at night? Samuel. Samuel. Is Saul considering something here? God's calling. He clearly recognizes it as that. Who are you, Lord? And what a shocking and terrifying answer he receives. What does the voice say? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Imagine that. In my pocket are letters to go and kill people who say they love Jesus. And here comes the voice of heaven, of God, saying, I am Jesus. Could you imagine the terror that would have come over Paul? And maybe you've anticipated, well, what should happen? This is the man who's going to destroy the people of God. There ought to be an immediate condemnation of this man. He's killed them and he's going to do so. But what do we get? Do we get a condemnation? No, we get a commission. What does Luke tell you? It says, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And then you pick up the next part of that story in verse 10. It's beautiful. It's encouraging for you in this room this morning. Those of you whom have rebelled against the Son of God, who've persecuted him, Paul says, what shall I do? Do you hear him? What shall I do? I'm yours. You've just called me. I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want. Maybe it's a little bit of Isaiah. Send me. I'm here. I'm at your disposal. Paul doesn't say, I hear you, Jesus. I need a minute. You just knocked me off my horse, you know. I I need a minute. I need to fact check what you said. Can I get it in writing? He says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'll, I'll do it. beautiful. It's also encouraging and exhorting because what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, just have a seat, Paul. He gives him something to do. Jesus doesn't call people to sit idly. He doesn't call you out of, as you've heard prayed this morning, out of darkness and into light to just sit still. He has an appointed work for you a purpose. He doesn't just save you simply because that might be the nice thing to do. I love you and I want something from you and for you. I have a purpose. I've appointed you to do something. Have you said that? What shall I do, Lord? He has a purpose for you and for me. 
At the very least, if you're struggling to answer that question, it's follow him. And you can only do that if you read his word and know it. He's told you over and over what he wants for you, what he wants from you, what he's doing in you, and what you are waiting for in all eternity. We learn a lot about who Jesus is, don't we? He's sovereign, that he can speak from the heavens. And Paul, hear him, and he gives work to Paul, something that he, Jesus, has appointed him to do. And he says, go on. You're going to meet up with Ananias, and he's going to tell you what you're supposed to do. He's going to give you understanding. Now, don't you like that Paul is telling the crowds, this is not just a private thought, you know. This is his defense. He's telling the people, this is what happened to me, and then I need to go and talk to Ananias. And then he gives you that detail. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. There it is again. Brothers, fathers, I'm one of you. Ananias, you know him. He's a great Jew. He's devout in his practice. He was the one who gave me instruction from God. And in fact, when I encountered him, how does Ananias speak to him? Brother Saul. What an encouragement for him. The one who left as a persecutor has just been brought into the family of God immediately. Brother Saul. And then he says, the God of our fathers. Here it is. We're in this. There it is, Paul saying, I am, I am Jewish. I'm not going against the law. I'm not going against the temple. I'm trying to teach you what the law really says. In fact, who it points to. I want you to understand the temple and what we are to be doing there. And what does Ananias tell him? You're to know God's will. He doesn't just point you to do something. You're going to know it. And you're going to see it. Did you see that in, verses, in verse 14? The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. You know, it's Jesus. You're not just going to know what to do. You're going to see Jesus. It's bringing us back to what we heard last week, that picture from Isaiah chapter 53. This son of God coming as a fulfillment to prophecy. He doesn't have anything of physical value that you're going to mind him. You're going to want to see him and look upon him. But it's who he is. He's the righteous one. He's the great light who speaks to his people. And he's righteous. That's a powerful word for Paul to hear. Isn't that what he said about himself? I am righteous. And yet here we get what? No, there's one righteous one. What I have been doing, Paul, all my work, all my achievements, all that I have gained is simply the wrath of God. I have deserved in my greatest efforts eternal damnation. I am not righteous. 
What I thought was good and right, as Isaiah says, is filthy rags before the righteous one. What I thought I was doing was wrong. It's Paul. He's going to say, I have fallen short. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's why he says in Philippians 3, it's worthless. Because when you see true righteousness, there's nothing like it. You can't compare yourself with Jim or Joe or Sally. It doesn't matter. That's not true objective righteousness. When you see the righteous one, we all say the same thing. I am undone. I am, in fact, unrighteous. Then I think it hits Paul. He goes into this flashback. When Ananias says to him, you're going to see the righteous one, it's not the first time Paul has heard that phrase. Where does righteous one come up? And you can imagine what's going on in Paul's life right now. That's right. Stephen. You remember Stephen is put on trial in Acts chapter 7. Do you remember how Stephen begins his defense? Brothers and fathers. And then he tells them, this is what God has been doing from the beginning of time. He walks them through the Old Testament and he finishes with what? In verse 52. And you murdered the righteous one. And you can see what's going to happen in Paul's life. He's going to tell you, I was there. Immediately following that verse in Stephen's defense, what happens? They start taking their cloaks off because they're trying to pick up stones to kill them. And they don't just put their garment right there. What do they do? They they cast it before Saul for his approval. Keep reading in Acts chapter 22. What is happening? Cloaks are about to come off again. But they're not being put before Paul for the purpose of approval. It's for the purpose of attack. Paul is understanding all of what has just taken place in his past. He's being confronted with really who I am. In my best work, I killed the Son of God and the people of God. I am altogether unrighteous. And then he finishes with what he has this experience in the temple. And Jesus says, you need to leave quickly. You need to get out of Jerusalem. Very encouraging message, right? The people aren't going to listen to you. You need to go. Go far away. And Paul has been obedient almost immediately every time. But here he seems to to ask a question. Let's pump the brakes, God. Just for a second. You don't think they're going to think to listen to me? I'm Paul. They know that I've been going in and out of every synagogue killing people. What what are they going to do when they find out, oh, I'm wrong? Don't you think that they will be curious? Would they want to know something? And God says, no, you're going to the Gentiles. And Paul is making this defense. Who am I? Who is Jesus? What's the result of defending the faith? Luke tells you, as soon as Paul says the word Gentiles, 
but people stop listening immediately. And they prepare to kill him. How do we think about the defense of the gospel? You and I need to know something about the gospel. It has an impact on everybody. It has an impact on everybody, even here. What's the impact for Paul? Well, he says Gentiles, they stop listening and they say, you don't deserve to live. And the tribune who's been sitting here and has no idea what Paul has been saying, but begins to see people taking off their cloaks, picking up rocks, knows, well, it wasn't encouraging. And so they grab them. And did you hear what they're going to do? They want to interrogate him, not to find out what's just going on. They want to interrogate him through flogging. That's not the kind of term that you and I often use. We, we try to use it in a humorous sense, but do you understand the, the actuality of what Rome would do in a flogging? It's called a flagellum. It's a leather handle with these, these whips on the end, and at the end of those little strips are pieces of metal, of knuckle bone, and they would hit you so hard not to bruise you, but to remove flesh. Most people died. Others crippled. This is what Paul is being stretched out to experience. This is what happens when Paul has defended his faith. And of course, it stopped because of the Roman law. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, and they can't do that to Roman citizens without a fair trial and sentence. But do you see what Paul is doing? He knows these kind of things. And what he is saying, what's the result? You let Scripture order your life, not circumstances, just because you have an angry mob of people, just because you have people who don't believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean you go, yeah, me too, or you sit quietly. Paul says, no, you, you defend the faith faithfully, even at such an extreme cost. I think Paul's experiencing what Jesus told his disciples. When you're on trial, don't worry because you have the Holy Spirit and he will speak. He will give you the words to say. He will guide you. And here's Paul. He's being impacted by the gospel. He's defending his faith, but he's not the only one impacted, you see. What about the people? Don't you find it interesting that Paul shares this testimony and he says, I was on my way to Damascus, not alone. There were others with me. And did you catch what he said? The great light shines, knocks me off. They saw the light, but not the light of the world. They heard a voice, but not the voice of truth. You see, there are people who are darkened in their hearts and in their minds. We don't live in a world of people who have no idea that there is a God. You're not trying to prove to people that there is one. Paul tells you in Romans chapter one, he's, he has revealed himself. They know it, they can see it, but they suppress it. It's plainly seen. The gospel always has an impact on people. Either you see the light of the world, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or you're in darkness. And that's why Jesus says to his people, you are the light of the world. 
Not because there's something so special about you, but because of the one who's in you. And then he says, shine. Shine your light before men that they might see your good deeds. He's paralleling light and good deeds. He's saying if you want to shine the light of Christ, you live a certain way. Your life matters in the kingdom. But it's going to shine in two different ways. You're going to shine your light and it's going to expose the beauty, the glory of God. They're going to see God for all of what he's worth in his glory. There's, a, there's an exposure to beauty. But sometimes the light gets turned on and it hurts. It doesn't just expose beauty, it reveals darkness. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Shine. And so there's one more question. It's impacted Paul and the people. What about you? It impacts everybody. Do you know the light of the world? We read about it in the call to worship, the psalmist. Do you have the desire to love and meditate and memorize and to bring into your life the truth of God's word? In fact, later in that psalm, do you know what the psalmist is going to say? Give me life according to your word. Do you delight to have God's word before you? Do you want the light of the world. It's the beauty of hearing how Christ has changed your life. That's one of the joys of being a pastor and an elder. We get to hear many of your testimonies. All testimonies have these questions in them, you see. Who am I? Who is Jesus? And what has he done in me? Has light shown in my life and brought me out of darkness. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, your defense of the gospel might not put you before Roman centurions. But make no mistake, it will cost you something. And you have to ask yourself, is Jesus worth it? And so let me ask you a question. What do you believe and are you willing to stand firm on it? Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the grace of God that has brought forth salvation. It is not a plan that we would have planned ourselves. It wouldn't have saved people that you have so chosen to save And yet it's glorious because it's all of you. And so we read this account of your servant, Paul, defending the truth of your word. And we pray, help us. Help us to hold fast to our confession of faith, that we don't just recite words, we mean it. We believe it. Our life is based on it and it's built upon it. And so when we make prayers of speak, O Lord, would you answer them and would we hear and therefore rise and move and respond with what shall I do? And then faithfully follow 
you. And in the same vein, we pray for people this morning, believing that the gospel impacts all. For those who live in darkness, might you shine the light of life, the person and work of Christ, that it might enter into their very soul this day. And they too might hear certain words, brother, sister, welcome home. We ask this in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.